You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... There's still a lot of work to be done, but we continue to believe that an agreement is possible and indeed essential. Uh, And we will continue to work relentlessly to achieve it. US top diplomat Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East. We'll have a readout from this latest round of shuttle diplomacy. The US Senate is likely to reject a multi-billion dollar aid deal for Ukraine today. We'll ask how the GOP's apparent sympathy for Russia will impact the party as the Republicans' cheerleader Tucker Carlson announces he'll be interviewing Putin in Moscow. We'll be in Dakar as Senegal faces a constitutional crisis over the postponement of the polls. And we'll find out how the right-wing parties of Europe are developing their relationships and what that means for the upcoming EU election. We'll have a roundup of papers and tech news, plus... In a world that is so divided, suddenly there is this story about people coming together in order to defeat all odds director of the survival thriller Society of the Snow stops by to talk about the Oscar-nominated film. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Donald Trump does not have immunity from charges. He plotted to overturn his 2020 election defeat. A federal appeals court ruled yesterday, bringing the former US president a step closer to an unprecedented criminal trial. Chilean ex-president Sebastian Pinera died in a helicopter crash on Tuesday, sending the country he led for two terms into mourning. And the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board has released initial findings from its probe into the Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX door that blew away shortly after takeoff in January, saying it may not have been properly secured. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the United States, Egypt and Qatar have been working on a deal to halt the war and enable the exchange of Israeli captives held by Hamas and Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been in Egypt on his fifth regional tour since October last year and is going on to Doha and Israel. Blinken began his tour by meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince in Riyadh. Well, I'm joined now by the Middle East correspondent Greg Karlstrom. Greg, many thanks for coming on The Globalist. What's come out so far of this latest round of shuttle diplomacy? Depends on who you ask. Secretary Blinken, uh, who was in Doha and then arrived in, in Tel Aviv last night, uh, said that there was a positive response from Hamas to uh, the latest proposal for a hostage deal. But then Joe Biden came out a few hours later and said uh, the response from Hamas was a little over the top, as he called it. So uh, not entirely clear which of those two versions is accurate. I think the the issue, as it has been for weeks now, comes down to Uh, whether this deal is merely a short-term truce that is designed to facilitate an exchange of hostages for prisoners 
uh, or whether it is meant to be a, a more permanent ceasefire to end the war in Gaza and a ceasefire that would perhaps leave Hamas in control of at least parts of the enclave. Israel obviously wants to do the former. Hamas obviously wants to do the latter. Uh, and they're still trying to, to find some way to bridge that gap. So the New York Times is reporting that at least 32 of the 136 remaining Israeli hostages uh, captured by Hamas are dead. And there seems to be uh, Israeli uh, corroboration of that. Uh, if this is the case, does Hamas hold any bargaining chips? It still does. It arguably holds a diminishing number of bargaining chips as as more and more of these hostages uh, seem to die in captivity. But at the same time, uh, that is increasing the pressure on the Israeli government from the families of these hostages who have become a very powerful political force uh, over the past four months and from a growing number of politicians in the center and, and on the political left in Israel, people like Gadi Eisenkot, a, a former army chief who is now uh, part of the war cabinet that is setting strategy uh, in Israel. He gave an interview a couple of weeks ago to Israeli television where he argued that uh, continued military pressure, continuing the fighting is not going to secure a hostage release, that the only way to get these hostages out uh, is to make a, a deal, is to negotiate with Hamas. And that's something you hear more and more from uh, centrists in Israel. There's more and more criticism of this idea that continuing the war will facilitate the release of the hostages. Mm. Uh, just having a look at Egypt for a moment, what, what, what are the specific concerns there that they're worried about uh, more activity on the border? They're, they're worried about two things at the moment. One is this continued talk from Yuav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister and other officials in Israel, uh, about pushing further south into Rafah, which is the southernmost city in Gaza. It's a city that sits on the border between Gaza and Egypt. Egypt, uh, obviously concerned about having any fighting on its borders, but specifically in this case, worried that uh, fighting in Rafah, where most of the Palestinian population has now been displaced, uh, will lead to a, a flow of refugees across the border into Egypt. And that is something the Egyptian government just does not want. So that's one issue for them. The other is their concern that the ongoing war in Gaza means this ongoing blockade of the Red Sea by the Houthis in Yemen that is depriving them of hundreds of millions of dollars a month uh, in revenue from the Suez Canal, which is one of their most important sources of hard currency. And so uh, they feel that the sooner the war ends, the, the quicker they're going to be able to get the canal working again and get desperately needed cash flowing into the Treasury. Mm. Now, as you said, Blinken is in Tel Aviv now. What do we expect from his meeting with Netanyahu? His meetings with Netanyahu over the past four months have not been very productive. I mean, just about everything he has gone there to push for, whether asking Israel to uh, greatly increase the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza, or shifting its tactics in Gaza to reduce civilian casualties, talking about uh, what happens after the war, the post-war arrangements in Gaza. He's been rebuffed time and time and time again by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is playing to his right-wing base and who is trying to avoid any politically difficult decisions uh, because he's worried about his own political future. So uh, I think for Secretary Blinken, what he wants to achieve is the same thing he's wanted to achieve on his last couple of visits. One is to get an Israeli commitment to some sort of a hostage deal with at least a, a six-week uh, pause in the fighting, a six-week truce, and then uh, to get some sense of what Israel thinks will happen after the war. Will the Palestinian Authority come back to Gaza? Will Israel uh, continue to control the enclave? And, and again, that's something that Netanyahu has simply refused to decide. Greg, thank you very much indeed. That's Greg Karlstrom there. And this is The Globalist. 
CBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It is nine minutes past ten in Moscow. That's uh, uh, two ten in Washington, D.C. After months of negotiations, a bill worth 180 billion U.S. dollars was released on Sunday evening. The legislation covers aid for Ukraine and Israel, as well as a bipartisan package of reforms on migration. The bill is, however, likely to be blocked by Republicans later today. Well, I'm joined by Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin, and by Jenny Mathers, senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Uh, Scott, I wonder if you could give us the details on this 118 billion US dollar worth bill. So, Georgina, uh, over 60 billion dollars of that 118 billion is to help Ukraine defend itself against the Russian invasion uh, soon to enter its third year. Uh, That includes a lot of military assistance, uh, very important at this point with the battlefield static in Ukraine. It includes economic and financial support to help the government continue to operate under wartime conditions. Uh, There is also aid to Israel uh, in the bill. There's aid to Taiwan and to the Asia Pacific uh, area. And in a compromise which had been sought by Republicans for months. Indeed, it was demanded by the Trumpist and the hard right in the House who were blockading the Ukraine aid last autumn. There is money for uh, enforcement measures on the U.S.-Mexico border. So this $118 billion package overall has been the product of months of negotiations, bipartisan negotiations, after the initial blackmail by a group of Republicans in the House in October But now that we are close to getting this compromise, as you noted, uh, Donald Trump and those House Republicans are saying they won't live by it. In other words, they're walking away from the agreement that they demanded. Why? Why has support for it collapsed? Because of two reasons. The first is, is that for Trump supporters, uh, the priority is not the functioning of the U.S. government. The priority is not an effective U.S. foreign policy. The priority is not the survival of Ukraine as an independent nation. The priority is Donald Trump's electoral campaign. For other Republicans, uh, they are either simply cowed by Trump, they're scared to cross him because he'll threaten them on social media, he'll try to mobilize people against them, or they now are codependent with him, uh, having actually been codependent throughout his first presidential term, protected him from conviction on impeachment charges twice, they still can't stand up to the man. So what effect is this having on the Republican Party? It's not a a real party anymore, Georgina. Within the last 24 hours, Georgina, not only do we have uh, this blackmail that's going to block this essential bill, 
we had the Trumpist and the hard right in the House try to impeach with no with no evidence whatsoever, try to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary and failing just because four Republicans refused to go along with it. Uh, we had uh, complete chaos in terms of uh, uh, House Republicans insulting Senate Republicans, including the leader of the Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell. And of course, we had a federal court reminding us of Donald Trump's legal problems by saying, no, he is not immune from uh, trials over his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. At national level, Donald Trump is currently trying to replace the head of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, who has protected him for years because he wants his person in at the top of the party. And at state levels, in states like Nevada and Utah, Republican committees are in disarray because of the internal fighting between the Trumpists and those who would be considered you know, or trying to portray themselves as the adults in the room. So uh, tell us about Mitch McConnell, because he seems to be at odds with the majority of the party. What's he said and is he right? Well, you know, Mitch McConnell, you know, was at times has tried to stand up to the Trumpist uh, just for a bit of historical context. After January the 6th in 2021, Trump's coup attempt, he said Trump should face uh, a reckoning in the courts. That's why he you know, protected Trump from conviction on the uh, impeachment charges. Um, so at times, McConnell has called out Trump's behavior. And as late as Monday of this week, he was trumpeting this compromise bill that would have ensured this aid to Ukraine, ensured uh, assistance to, to Taiwan. But then on every occasion when he's resisted by the Trumpist, when they he is attacked by their media outlets like Breitbart uh, to an extent by Fox, uh, he backs off and says, well, I, I just don't think it's going to be possible to do this. And that appears what is was going to happen. We'll know in the vote later today. Um, you need 10 Republicans to join the Democrats to advance the bill for Ukraine aid. But McConnell has said on Monday night, I, I just don't think this can proceed. In other words, he took a knee. He bowed down before the Trumpist threat yet again. So the GOP media darling Tucker Carlson's in Russia at present. He says he's going to interview Vladimir Putin. Now, we know that Carlson's expressed sympathy for Putin previously. He's also been touted as a potential running mate for Donald Trump in the next election. What does this tell us about the Republicans' relationship with the Kremlin? Well, I, I don't think he's going to be Donald Trump's vice presidential running mate. I think I'd look to Elise Stefanik, uh, the Trumpist representative from New York, but Tucker Carlson for years has been an outlet for the Kremlin and for its allies. Uh, before this latest trip to Moscow, he was an outlet for the uh, far-right Hungarian leader, uh, uh, Viktor Orban, who until last week was trying to block European Union aid to Ukraine. He has repeated Kremlin talking points again and again and again. And while Fox News finally got rid of Carlson, over a series of issues and a series of violations, uh, there is a section of the Republican Party, not a, all of the Republican Party, but there are a section of Republicans who embrace Tucker, no matter how outrageous his statements are. In other words, to give you one example, when I was young, Ronald Reagan was the Republican Party standard bearer, and that included defending other countries against the aggression of the Soviet Union. Here we are, less than 40 years later, and Tucker Carlson is actually saying that any U.S. defense of Ukraine, the Baltic states, Poland, that's not acceptable. 
And a lot of Republicans, or at least a lot of Trumpists, stand up and applaud and say, you know, right, it's Vladimir Putin who's the guy who's being transgressed here. And Tucker Carlson's going to give him a softball interview to repeat that message within the near future. I mean, Scott, you've tweeted that we may be witnessing the disintegration of the Republican Party. What takes its place? Just Donald Trump and his followers? That's what Trump hopes for. And, and I want to be clear here uh, that what Trump is hoping is he's already got a lot of the Republican members of the House uh, who, for their political futures, have tied themselves to him. He's got some Republican senators who have done that. He has got many Republicans at state level who've linked themselves to him. He has got tried to take down the courts. He's tried to take down Congress. He's tried to take down agencies, U.S. agencies. He will not pursue a Republican Party approach, which is for the good of the Republican Party and the good of the country. He wants a Republican Party, which is for Donald Trump's ego and what Donald Trump wants. And regrettably, except for a section of Republicans who are trying to stand up for this, including, it must be said, his challenger for the nomination, Nikki Haley, it looks like he is succeeding. And if he does so, this will not be short term, even if Trump loses the 2024 election. The Republican Party has lost its soul. It's lost its soul on domestic policy. It's lost its soul on foreign policy. And it's lost its soul on the basic integrity of supporting a U.S. system, which has stood for almost 250 years. Scott, thank you very much indeed. That was Scott Lucas there. Well, now let's bring in Jenny Mathers. Jenny, looking towards the upcoming presidential election in Russia, there is one credible anti-war candidate standing against Putin. What can you tell us about Boris Nadezhdin? So Boris Nadezhdin was a physicist originally uh, who was elected to the Russian parliament, the Duma, um, in the late 1990s and served for about four years at a time when uh, it was much more open to uh, candidates uh, from a, a wide range of political perspectives. Uh, it's since, of course, closed down much more considerably since then. But but at that time, it was much more open. Uh, and more recently, he's been a sort of a councillor, uh, a local councillor in a town outside of Moscow. But he's come to fame uh, because of his uh, really staunch opposition to the war in Ukraine. He's been very public. He's often a guest on Russian uh, TV talk shows, which are notoriously xenophobic and and sort of almost hysterical in their in their denunciation of Ukraine. And he's sort of been the voice of reason, um, possibly as uh, just a, a, an opportunity to, to shoot down these kinds of arguments. But nevertheless, he's been there and it's given him a certain amount of a public um, kind of, um, you know, uh, publicity, if you like. Um, so he is running for a president, or he wants to run for president uh, against Boris Yeltsin. And he has collected the necessary... Vladimir Putin. <laughs> against Putin, sorry. Um, <laughs> he has um, collected the necessary 100,000 uh, signatures. He's been nominated by a political party, a center-right party. Um, but now the Central Electoral Commission in Russia has indicated that some of his um, signatures are not valid uh, and it looks as though he may be disqualified. So although we know Russia has a long history of manipulating elections, could the exclusion of Nadezhdin completely shatter that veneer of legitimacy that they've managed to maintain? Well, it is it is a veneer of, of legitimacy, and I think it's been pretty much shattered, uh, you know, many times in the past. Uh, it, it's quite 
obvious that any candidate who uh, is is in any way opposing Putin in a serious way um, is not going to be allowed to run. And we've seen this happen before. We had another uh, anti-war candidate, a uh, woman, uh, Yekaterina Dansova, uh, who was also disqualified in December. Uh, in previous elections, uh, people like you know Alexei Navalny have been have been disqualified. So it's it's a long-standing practice. But I think what it shows us here is that the Kremlin is really not very confident in its ability to uh, you know, push aside uh, a candidate who uh, expresses an anti-war position. Uh, and that's quite extraordinary, considering the amount of control that the, the government has over the media, over you know, public uh, protests, over all kinds of things, and, and the way that they've been using that legislation to criminalize uh, support for opposition to the war uh, you know, over the past couple of years. So I think it reveals a, a lack of confidence and a real fragility uh, on the part of the regime. And makes it incontrovertible that Russia is essentially undemocratic. So given what we discussed with Scott earlier in the show, why would the US Republican Party want to publicly ally themselves with Putin? Well, I think there's a number of of reasons here. One is that Putin's image as the strong man, the strong leader, is something that a lot of Republicans find very attractive. And they have the sort of fantasy that, that this is what the U.S. should do. It should just throw its weight around in the world, do whatever it wants to do, um, you know, look out for its own interests in a very sort of brazen way, not be constrained by any sort of rules or norms or allies or anything. And and this is sort of the idea of, of what the U.S. might might do under a, a Putin-like leader, i.e. Donald Trump. Um, but also, I think the I, the fact that Putin has really developed this idea that Russian stands for traditional family values and traditional social values is very appealing to many Republicans and more conservative Americans who uh, you know, are concerned about more rights for <clears throat> LGBT uh, people, who are concerned about <clears throat> things like gay marriage and so on, <clears throat> because they see Putin as a figure who really stands up for social values that they treasure. Um, and they think that this is the way that America should go much more towards uh, the way that life was in the 1950s. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. That was Jenny Mathers there. And before that, Scott Lucas. Now, still to come on the programme. For us, it's important now that people see the film and awards and festivals are important to give visibility to the, to the film. The director of the Oscar-nominated Society of the Snow stops by Midori House. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It is 7.22 here in London. This is The Globalist. I'm Georgina Godwin. And with me in the studio now is Paul Waldy, who is Europe correspondent at The Globe and Mail. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. We've been hearing really quite a shocking uh, testimony from, from Scott Lucas talking about the disintegration of the Republican Party, how this is all very much for Trump's personal benefit. But it looks like, according to The New York Times, uh, that may not happen because he could be in jail. 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're a long way from saying that. But, I mean, there was a pretty significant court ruling that came out yesterday from a court of appeal uh, in the Washington, D.C. And this, of course, is looking at this whole issue of whether or not Trump is immune from prosecution for basically anything he did as president. That's been Trump's argument, that he could basically even order an elite military unit to kill uh, one of his opponents, and he would still be immune from prosecution. Uh, that didn't fly with this appeal court. It said, no, you're not immune, that in fact it would be bizarre if the person who is elected president, who is swearing an oath to uphold all the laws of the country, would then be immune from breaking those laws under any circumstances. So he's lost at this level. Of course, there's more appeals to come. But interestingly, this decision also said, it tried to, to curtail some of his attempts to delay this, because under under the U.S. system, once you have a decision from three appeal court judges, you can then ask for a larger panel to review the case and then file, if you want, an application to the Supreme Court. And what this court said is if Trump tries to apply for an appeal to a larger panel of appeal court judges, his trial is going to go ahead anyway. They're not going to delay it. They will only delay his trial if he makes an appeal to the Supreme Court. So they're trying to circumvent one of his delay options. So that that could be significant as well. But if he does go to the Supreme Court, of course, he's appointed the majority of the judges on it. He has. But I mean, I think this ruling and a lot of legal experts say that Trump's arguments in this case have just been so out there that it really won't fly and that he's very unlikely to win even at the Supreme Court on an issue like this. So then it's all about timing, isn't it? Whether it's before or after the election. It is. And I think that's one of the reasons why the appeal court sort of threw this this caveat in there about curtailing one of his options to delay. But yes, I mean, this, even if it gets to the Supreme Court quickly, uh, they could take many months before they hear this thing. And it's really unclear if this trial, let alone the other three that Trump is about to face, will go ahead before the election in November. Let's turn our attention to Canada and university uh, applications in Quebec. Uh, Three English language universities, including McGill, uh, have seen enrolment drop. Why is that? Well, they've seen enrolment drop substantially, up to 30% in some cases. And this all relates to a decision by the Quebec government to increase tuition at these three English language universities. Not the uh, Quebec-based French language universities. They've only targeted the English language universities. And they're doing this by saying that any students from outside of Quebec, any Canadian students from outside of Quebec, will now have to pay $12,000 a year in tuition. Now, for some people, that might not sound like a lot, especially if you're from the U.S., but think about this. It's twice as much as a Canadian student would pay to attend University of Toronto or University of British Columbia, and it's about four times as much as a Quebec student will have to pay to attend McGill. So it's aimed at, the Quebec government says, increasing proficiency in the Quebec the French language. Another rule they put in place is that anyone who enrolls at McGill uh, or Concordia Bishops, the three uh, English language universities, will have to pass a French proficiency test by the time they graduate, no matter what subject they take. So that's also kind of put a, a knock on enrollment. And, you know, McGill and the other universities are saying, look, this is this is really hurting us. It's hurting our enrollment. It's hurting our, our uh, image abroad. And it's really going to dent their finances as well. Absolutely. Uh, and that story, of course, from your own paper, The, Glo- the Globe and Mail. Uh, Let's move on now. She is ubiquitous. You cannot get away from this woman. (laughs) I actually tried listening to her last night. We're talking about Taylor Swift. Uh, She is threatened to sue a US college student who uses publicly sourced information to track her private jet. (laughs) Yeah, this has been an an ongoing issue. 
with this guy. He's a college student in Florida, a guy named Jack Sweeney. He's been doing this for a while. He tracks the private uh, jets of billionaires and celebrities, really to, to showcase the environmental, the emissions these jets cause and, and the environmental damage some of these flights are doing. So he's Taylor Swift is one of them. She's come back and gone after him and said, stop doing this. This could lead to stalkers. This could endanger me. This could, this could cause me all kinds of problems. Uh, her lawyers have sent this guy a pretty strongly worded letter. His argument in return has been, well, look, this is free speech and this is publicly available information and show me the law that says I'm violating and doing this. So it's an interesting dilemma. He has faced this problem before. Elon Musk went after him and and banned him from Twitter because he was doing the exact same thing. So he has found other ways, other social media ways of getting this information out. And of course, you know, Taylor Swift, she's been in the news. She's always in the news, but she's been in the news this week for her flights because she's doing shows in Tokyo. She's trying to get back to the Super Bowl in Las Vegas to watch her boyfriend, uh, Travis Kelsey, play for the Kansas City Chiefs. Then she's got to go back to Australia. So there's been a lot of talk about her flights anyway. So to go after this guy seems a little bit in Congress. Uh, and, and of course, I mean, we can all track it on flight radar or but many sites. Well, that's the thing. There, there are lots of there are lots of ways of doing this. I mean, the FAA has put some restrictions on and some flights can be can be deemed private and that kind of thing. But there's tons of ways of finding this information out in the U.S. So it's really hard to say what he's doing that would be illegal. You, you may you may question the the sort of ethics of this and whether or not this is, this is the right thing to do. But it's really hard to see what law he's actually breaking. Uh, of course, he was banned, though, by Facebook and Instagram. He has been, yes. And again, again, not because he's done anything illegal, but because they face pressure from the people involved, from the billionaires and the celebrities who said, look, this is endangering me and I don't like this. Uh, but so far, I haven't seen anybody actually successfully sue him. Mm. I mean, the U.S. is in a front. Over, over whether she's going to publicly endorse Biden or not. And if she does so, will it be after her boyfriend is on the winning team at the Super Bowl? Well, that's the key thing. I think she's more worried about the Super Bowl at this point than she is about the U.S. election. But yeah, I mean, I think the Democrats are very eager for her to endorse Biden. She did last time. Whether she does this time again remains to be seen. And, of course, there's a huge question about whether these celebrity endorsements make any difference at all anyway. I mean, yes, people who were going to vote for Biden anyway might like it. People who weren't probably won't care. So I don't know how much sway she will have uh, overall. Uh, now, let's go to the FT. And this is... Uh India's business elite <laughs> very worried about thefts in Mayfair. Apparently this has come up in negotiations Britain is having with India over a trade deal where Indian executives are saying, look, you know, one of our biggest issues is that we're getting robbed every time we arrive in Mayfair or exclusive neighborhoods of London. So, I mean, obviously this isn't just Indian businessmen, but there are some there's some real numbers behind this. Apparently thefts of things like Rolex watches, handbags, cell phones has really gone up in places like Mayfair. It's up about 40% year on year. It's up about 20-odd percent across the whole city. It's 25,000 cases or something last year in Mayfair of people being robbed of these items. So there is a real issue here. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I am very wary about pulling out my mobile phone on the streets in London because there have been many occasions where people whip by on a, on a, on a scooter or something and, and snatch it out of your hand. So uh, there's a real concern here. Whether or not it's going to scupper trade talks, I don't know. But the fact that it's even being raised by Indian executives shows that, you know, there's there's real worry out there. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, there's this one person quoted here saying, you can walk anywhere in Delhi and you won't be mugged. And I yeah, think yeah. that's <laughs> extraordinary for British people to think that that 
that is the comparison that's been made. Yeah, here. it is. And I mean, he was also saying that, you know, London is a walking city for a lot of people and you don't want to have to be looking over your shoulder constantly. And they and for some Indian CEOs, this is as big a, a deal for them as immigration hassles at Heathrow or delays at Heathrow and getting into the country. That's how they're equating this problem. So, yeah, it's an issue. And then Met, Metropolitan Police have said they're tackling this. They've got special uh, campaigns on to tackle this. And they've seen a little bit of a decrease in this. So hopefully that will continue. Paul, thank you very much indeed. That's Paul Waldy there. Now, here's a roundup of the day's main news headlines. Donald Trump does not have immunity from charges he plotted to overturn his 2020 election defeat. A federal appeals court ruled yesterday, bringing the former US president a step closer to an unprecedented criminal trial. The ruling, which Trump vowed to appeal, rebuffs his attempt to avoid a trial on charges that he undermined American democracy and the transfer of power, even as he consolidates his position as the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination. Chilean ex-president Sebastian Pinera died in a helicopter crash on Tuesday, sending the country he led for two terms into mourning and prompting an outpouring of condolences from leaders across Latin America. The helicopter carrying Pinera, 74, and three others plunged into a lake in southern Chile. The former president was pronounced dead shortly after rescue personnel arrived at the scene. The other three passengers survived. And the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board has released initial findings for its probe into the Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX door that blew away shortly after takeoff in January. It says four key bolts that were meant to lock the unused door to the fuselage appear to be missing. Replying to the report, Boeing said it was accountable for what happened. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, Senegal's reputation as a bastion of democracy in the troubled West African region is on the line. President Macky Sall, who's reached the constitutional limit of two terms in power, has announced a further delay to the next election, tipping the country into uncharted constitutional waters and prompting protests and accusations of an institutional coup. Well, Ida Grovesteins is a journalist and a filmmaker based in Dhaka and joins me now. Ida, many thanks for coming on the show. What is the background to this? Um, um, yeah, there has been a lot of uh, unrest in the last three years, we can say, because the government um, wanted to eliminate um, certain opposition leaders. Uh, there's a very popular opposition leader, Usman Sonko, and um there were a lot of polit uh, trials and uh, against him, and the, the main opposition parties think it's uh, political, uh, politically inspired. Um, and this all led to unrest in the city and, and a lot of um, harsh uh, crackdowns on the opposition and on street protests. Um, so it's actually Makisal not being sure that the candidate he chose will be elected. Uh, when the elections would be held on the 25th of, of uh, February, which was planned according to the Constitution. Mm. Well, what did Sal give us his official reason for the postponement? Uh, he says um, the, the vote should be delayed because there's an investigation by the parliament, parliament into how the nation's constitutional council determined who can stand in election. And the probe was initiated by um, after the party of opposition leader Karim Wad, 
the son of Sal's predecessor, Abdulewat, accused two judges of corruption and blamed them for his disqualification from the race. So this all spilled over into violence at the weekend. Can you just give us more detail what happened during these protests and how the police reacted? Um, yes, the, the, the opposition, the uh, majority of opposition uh, 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 politicians said, OK, we will start the campaign anyway. So they went in the, into the street, but immediately there was all the riot police and they uh, used tear gas. And so it was impossible for, for people to protest. And they also immediately arrested two uh, officials and yesterday um, deputies were arrested and during the vote, the riot, riot police came into the parliament, uh, which is incredible. And they took away, uh, they removed uh, the deputies that didn't want to uh, vote for this law that postponed elections to uh, 15 December. So um, it's very, there are not a lot of clashes in the street because of this situation. It's very hard, very hard to protest. Um, uh, so the opposition has to find new ways to protest um, against this law, against, against this postponement. And there have been att- attempts to clamp down on the media and the internet too. Uh, true. Uh, the internet has been uh, shut down, the mobile internet, since Sunday. And um, uh, there's a lot of harassment against journalists. Um, the, the, the only privately held independent TV station uh, was the signal of, of that TV station was permanent, permanently deleted. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, the government takes all the measures for people not to protest. So what have the regional bodies, the African Union and ECOWAS said about this? Um, ECOWAS uh, urges uh, the, the government to, to respect the constitution and, um, and don't delay the, and don't delay the elections. Uh, also now um, the US has said it, uh, had said so. They were all a bit late. Uh, in the beginning, they accepted. Um, uh, President Maldi said, OK, you just have to organize a fair and free elections, which is obviously not possible. Um, so more and more the foreign countries start to speak up about this. So West Africa is a deeply divided region. There's military juntas leading three nations, Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso. What's Maki Sell's relationship with those countries? Um, well, he has said in the past that uh, that he wasn't against um, the military taking over in Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso because he said, well, maybe that's the only way uh, to really deal with the jihadists that have, have uh, um, grown there, the different groups since 2012. Uh, so that's that's an interesting remark um, in this uh, in this respect. Um, but at the same time, as the he was the president for half a year of the African Union, and then he said, "Okay, no, democracy is very important. We really have to um, respect the, our constitutions." So. It's, it's, yeah, we have to see what will happen. I mean, as you said, he, he, he did lead the African Union uh, and in that role, he met with Vladimir Putin. Is there any suggestion that there might be foreign influence behind this constitutional crisis? No, actually, none of the experts and also the population don't think this. Uh, that's the case. It's more that's, that Makisal and his wife and all the family around uh, and 
little group of people around, they want to keep on uh, to the power. Also, because there has been a lot of corruption and Saul, um, uh, his fear is that if the main opposition leader, the very popular, popular opposition leader, Usman Sonko, will um, take power, that uh, Saul and his family might go to jail. Uh, thank you very much to you, Aida. That's Aida Groverstein st- speaking to us from Dhaka. And this is Monocle Radio. It is 8.39 in Paris, 7.39 here in London. In January, we saw a major fallout between Marine Le Pen's RN party and the German far-right AFD over the latter's remigration policy. But now, in preparation for a European Parliament that will likely veer to the right following the EU elections, the far-right Identity and Democracy, or ID, body to which both belong is looking to patch up the bonds between its national parties. The RN and the AFD met yesterday to advance this agenda. Well, Philippe Malière is a professor of French and European politics at University College London and joins me on the line now. Philippe, what does the Identity and Democracy Party stand for? Good morning, Georgina. Well, it's one of the two uh, major uh, parliamentary groups in the European Parliament in which you find uh, sort of the various parties which you, you could sort of uh, position on the far right of the political spectrum. And you, you're right, the ID group standing for identity and democracy uh, has um, uh, the, the following major parties, the French RN, the German AFD, the Italian League of uh, Matteo Salvini, and uh, the other one is the ECR, the European Conservatives and Reformists, in which you find uh, the Polish Law and Justice Party, um, uh, Georgina Meloni's the, the Italian Prime Minister Fratelli d'Italia, and the Spanish Vox Party. So I think overall, uh, two groups, uh, of course, there are differences uh, which are due to the sort of a national uh, context, different types of cultures, different types of history. The, the history of the RN in France is not the same as, as AFD in Germany. Um, RN was founded in France by Jean-Marie Le Pen in the 1970s, and I think it was the, the legacy of the party was really the sort of Vichy regime, uh, Vichy of a collaborationist regime with uh, Nazi Germany, whereas AFD surprisingly started off on uh, on the center of the political spectrum. It was a a gathering of economists who were uh, sort of uh, lamenting the loss of the Deutschmark. You know, they were against uh, Germany uh, sort of uh, dropping the Deutschmark for the euro. So you see various stories. But I think overall, and this is your question, you there, there, also, there is convergence, and the convergence is really the main topic is immigration, hence, you know, the, the topic of remigration, uh, a kind of, I would say, social chauvinism, the fact that, you know, uh, social protection, social benefits should be allocated to nationals only, not to, not to foreigners, even those who've been living, working, paying taxes in our countries. Uh, really, immigration, also a, a kind of definition of... Uh, of uh, national identity and European culture, which is not a- inclusive, you know, they're sort of referring often to uh, the Christian roots. So differences, convergence, and that, that probably explains why you have the, 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 these two different groups. And I, I expect the two groups to remain intact. You know, they will not merge. 
despite probably uh, uh, electoral gains in, in the next European election. Uh, and what happened at this meeting yesterday between RN and AFT? Well, they try to sort of uh, iron out the, the differences. And I think uh, Le Pen was very clear about that. She doesn't want to hear about talk, any talks about remigration, which is a very extreme and very vague uh, proposal. Remigration is this idea that one should send back uh, to where they come from. And again, uh, 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 people who are not were not nationals and and. It is vague because uh, in the talks, you know, which started off the the sort of uh, the, the controversy uh, which took place in uh, in Potsdam, uh, there was the, the sort of idea, the idea was floated that almost virtually anyone could be could be sent back, including uh, people born on German soil. Uh, to uh, foreign parents. Some of them might be, by the way, uh, German. Also, uh, do, whom do you send back? You also send back people who are in Germany in a legal situation or just illegal people. So they came forward immediately to clarify it would be just people in an illegal situation, people, for instance, having committed crimes in Germany. But I think the damage was uh, was done because Le Pen was very, very clear. You know, since since succeeding her father in 2011, she she has put really she has distanced herself from from all that kind of far right uh, neo fascist uh, talk. She doesn't want any extreme solutions. She wants to be seen as a as a kind of normal party, almost mainstream party. Uh, so those discussions on remigration or the Great Replacement, the fact that Europe would be sort of now the population, European population would be progressively replaced by a foreign one coming from Asia or Africa. Uh, she's really, uh, she doesn't want to hear about that because she knows it's, she, 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 will, she will not uh, win votes in France if she, she, she is seen as being associated to that kind of ideas. Mm. And, and finally, Philippe, I mean, are, are we expecting to see uh, right-wing parties dominate in the European parliamentary elections? And if so, how will that affect key EU policies? There will certainly make gains in terms of seats, in terms of, so you expect very good results, notably in France. You know, France, uh, the RN at the moment is largely ahead in the polls. You know, there's a sort of 10 points gap between RN and Macron's party. And so, yes, the results will be good. It doesn't mean, you know, they're starting from a quite low position. So they're, they're not there to challenge, you know, the EPP, the sort of centre-right, the main parliamentary group in the European Parliament, nor the uh, so- Social Democrats, second group. But they will make gains. And the fact they will have more representatives will probably uh, be more difficult for, for the mainstream party, you know, to, 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 to pass legislation. And, and certainly they will, they will impact, you know, the, the new parliament. Philippe, thank you very much indeed. That was Philippe Malier, and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Now it's time to talk technology with David Phelan, Monocle's technology correspondent, who joins me in the studio. Good morning to you, David. Good morning. Uh, we are talking about Facebook labels. Now, this is all to do with protecting images which have been manipulated. Tell us more. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, there's nothing new about 
images that have been manipulated. We're all familiar with um, something that looks too photoshopped or something like that. But it's now got so um, skillful uh, that it's very difficult to tell the difference between something that's been uh, that's an original image or an original video or has been manipulated. And there've certainly been issues recently with um, completely generated images and videos of um, pop stars, for example. Um, so one of the things that Facebook, Meta, its uh, parent company, which also owns Threads and Instagram, is doing is that it is going to use software that will label fake images. It already does that for images that it creates itself to say this has been manipulated. But it, new software means that it will be able to tell when someone else has manipulated it and it can label it as such. Well, this is all very well, but apparently it's quite easy to evade these um, suggestions. And it seems that labelling, well, it's a great and important thing, but it, it's not always going to be the way uh, to solve the issue. Mm, absolutely. Uh, let's have a look now at uh, Apple and changes to the iPhone coming in March. Yes, this is a very big change coming to the iPhone, uh, mostly for people in the European Union. Um, and, however, that will slightly presage what things will be like for the rest of us, certainly in the UK. Um, it, it's because of the European Union's Digital Markets Act, and we have something similar in the UK that uh, is going to likely impact it in the same way. And it's to do with opening up um, the App Store, or indeed the iPhone itself. People argue that if I spent a £1,000 on a, a piece of metal and glass that's a portable computer that is, is the iPhone, I should be able to put any software on it that I'm capable of doing. And uh, the European Union has decided there is some value in this. And so from early March, in order to comply with the Act, and Apple really doesn't want to do this, uh, it is opening up its uh, system so that you can have rival app marketplaces which will appear, they will appear as an app on the iPhone and uh, from there you'll be able to download apps uh, directly. And the reason that companies, Spotify is one of the um, companies that has made an objection that led to the act happening in the first place. The reason they want to have their own marketplaces is that if you have an app in the App Store, in order to earn money through in-app purchases or subscriptions, you have to pay a commission to Apple. It can be anything up to 30%. You don't have to do that if you've got your own app marketplace. Apple is saying, well, but we can't guarantee that it's going to be safe. We do everything we can. Putting those measures in place is expensive, so we're going to charge half a euro, 50 cents, uh, per download for any apps that come to the iPhone from outside marketplaces. Only after the first million downloads. They say 90-something percent of, P of app developers won't be affected or they'll pay less. Someone like Spotify with 236 million uh, subscribers would pay a huge amount. So they are claiming that this is actually um, a, a terrible way to improve things. Mm. David, I have now come to the conclusion that you are such an important tech journalist <laughs> that huge international companies are launching their products in Mallorca, in Palma, Mallorca, because of course you have a base there and Shark Ninja 
the Massachusetts company decided to have its European summit there. Now, if that's not a, a nod to the importance of your opinion, I don't know what is. Well, I, I suppose that might be right. They haven't actually confirmed that to me. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. Uh, for the first time ever, Shark Ninja, an American company, had its European, Middle East and Africa uh, conference. and It's the first one they've had anywhere. And they chose Palma de Mallorca, which was a lovely uh, site to do it in. And they launched 20 new products. Shark Ninja is, is a brand that a lot of people haven't heard of. It's essentially two companies in one. Shark makes lots of things that blow or suck, like vacuum cleaners, hair dryers. Ninja makes um, ice cream makers. And uh, indeed, um, one of their big things is air fryers. They, they had a big banquet uh, one night and the food was delicious and it was all cooked in Ninja multi-cookers or air fryers. Uh, it's, it's, it's a company that is growing apace. Uh, absolutely. I'm fascinated by the Ninja air fryer. I really want one, but I want to see them all lined up. Which was the smallest? Do you remember? Well, yes. The newest one is the smallest, not because it's, it has hugely reduced capacity, but because it's a double-decker. So you've got two um, kind of trays that pull out and within each one there's there's dividers so you can have different kinds of food uh, and it's a very very effective thing it takes up almost no space on your desktop uh, or countertop rather but it, it, it allows you still to cook a lot of food in it excellent david thank you very much for joining us very useful tip there that's the one i'm going to get this is the globalist on monocle radio And finally on today's programme, we head to the Andes, where more than 50 years ago a plane carrying 45 people crashed, leaving the survivors to fight for their lives in the hard-to-reach, harsh conditions of the mountains for 72 days. By the end of the gruelling ordeal, 16 made it out alive, and their miraculous story has been retold in books, documentaries and stage plays. It's also been turned into movies, the latest of which is Society of the Snow, which is based on the non-fiction book of the same name, featuring the accounts of the survivors. And it's been nominated for a BAFTA and two Oscars, including Best International Feature Film. Monocle's Laura Kramer caught up with the director Juan Antonio Bayona, who stopped by Midori House. And he began by telling Laura he'd had the book rights for 10 years, but the project almost didn't happen because nobody wanted to fund it. The problem is that it's a big film. In order to, to be shot the way it has been shot, in real locations, it's it's very demanding. So you 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 need a, a minimum amount of budget to do that. And shooting in Spanish, it gives you like a limit of the of the amount of money you can get in the in the independent market. We normally finance our films in the independent market. So so it was impossible to finance. It was a movie that the the normal ways to finance a film were not working. And it was Netflix who finally show up and save our lives because. Uh, um, they gave us the level of ambition we were looking for and also the freedom. It was um, our last chance and I'm so glad that it came out. And it's paid off. It's been, what, number one for since it's basically been released in the top ten. Yeah, yeah. How does that make you feel after all that work, more than a decade that you've put into this project? It's great, you know, when you see how the, the film and the story resonates in the audience. It makes you think about it. Still nowadays about this story. It's interesting, you know, in a world that is so divided, 
suddenly there is this story about people coming together in order to defeat all odds. Uh, so it's very, very, very interesting how the audience is reacting to the film and how successful and the impact is creating in the audience. And then we created this family. We, we shot for so long time. We were like shooting for 140 days plus two months, seven weeks of rehearsals. So you can see like the, the bones and the, the link that it's creating on the screen is something that really happened also behind the camera. I know it was really important to you to have the film in Spanish. Yeah. And, you know, you've spoken before that films in Spanish have a budget ceiling. You, you quoted around 10 million U.S. dollars. And I wondered, what do you think needs to happen for these films in, that are not in the English language in order to get more financing? Well, it needs to happen for theaters because uh, on Netflix uh, they they don't have a problem in finance uh, projects uh, like 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 big projects in Spanish, uh, but theaters is different. There is still a lot to do with audiences trying to push them or convince them to go to see movies with subtitles to the theaters. Because nowadays, movies with subtitles, they mostly play in small art houses, you know. It's not mainstream cinemas. And we really need to convince uh, people to, to go to, to the cinemas to watch them. And then we will be able to finance them for, for that kind of window. And I have to say, it really is the type of film that you want to see in the cinema. Yeah. It's overwhelming. It's an epic. You know, it is, I, I yeah. remember the first time I, I went to the Andes uh, before shooting, we went there. And the first time I, I saw the place is uh, overwhelming. The, the sight of those mountains, the sound is so impressive. You know, when you don't hear a thing, there's nothing alive. So the only thing that you can hear is yourself. When you experience that in a, in a movie theater, it's, it's much better. But at the same time, I'm so glad that the movie now is playing all over the world. I mean, it's the millions of people is, are watching the film every day. I mean, <laughs> it's something that I still need to process. And, you know, it must be so exciting for you. Oscar nominations, BAFTA nomination. What do you think the impact of it is for the longevity of a film? It's the impact, the cultural relevance that you can achieve with a film that what makes the film last. And in that sense, film festivals and awards are important because they are at the service of that. You really want the, the, the people to, to see the film. You know, especially when you tell a story like this one that is so special and the people who who live through those uh, very extreme and remarkable experiences gave us the, the, the confidence, the trust to tell their story. So, so for us, it's important now that people see the film and awards and festivals are important to give visibility to the, to the film. It's great to be with this film all over the world because their reactions are beautiful and, and it's very spe it's a very special story. Since I was a kid, I used to wake up to watch the Oscars, you know, so, so now seeing yourself nominated for the Oscars, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's great. And are you going to prepare a speech? No, I, I, I never prepare a speech. I, I always improvise the speech. I normally think the speech during the ceremony. These ceremonies tend to be so long that you <laughs> you have time to to do that. No, no, I, I don't know. I, I don't think about it, you know. It would be great for, for, for all the people, especially all the people in Spain, people in Uruguay and Argentina. I, th I think if, I don't know, maybe maybe if we, if we, if we win the Oscar, we, we will take it to to Argentina or Uruguay or even to the place, to the Andes, that would be fantastic because we want to go back with the actors to to the place where the plane crashed one day. Because we created this such a special family. It was such a long project that we have this uh, 
beautiful relation now and and we all mentioned that we we are going to go back to the to the to the andes to el valle de las lagrimas where the plane crashed and and visit it together and honor them yeah that would be fantastic Juan Antonio Bayona there in conversation with Monocle's Laura Kramer. Society of the Snow is streaming on Netflix now. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer, our researcher Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager Tamsin Howard with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.